Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. There is a new 30 for 30 out about the 1986 Mets. It's called Once Upon a Time in Queens. It's a four-part series, and the producer and director of Once Upon a Time in Queens, Nick Davis, joins us now on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line on 101. Nick, thanks for taking so much uh, the time with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I've never been on a celebrity line. Before. Oh, well, <laughs> you are. If you weren't before, you're a celebrity now. Uh, here we are 35 years after the 1986 Mets. What prompted you to put this together? Uh, I have been a lifelong Mets fan, and I always wanted to tell this story um, from the moment actually in 85 during that great uh, playoff uh, race with the Cardinals, I I felt like, oh my gosh, you know, all my life I've waited for a team and an exciting moment like this. Um, You know, as a kid, I grew up reading Boys of Summer and just sort of dreaming about a team that that had that kind of legendary possibility, and I was getting it in the mid-'80s, and I felt like, well, this I'm never going to forget this. This is so amazing. I really want to remember this. And um, as long-form documentaries started to, you know, become popular, I, I, I always wondered, why has the 1986 Mets people have written books about them and they've done portions, you know, but why has this epic story to me never been told? Um, and so, you know, luckily enough, I, I got in a position where I, I started to ask that question of the people who could help me make it happen. And Nick, you mentioned you grew up a Mets fan. And one thing that I really took away from this 30 for 30 is that you can't really tell the story of those Mets without infusing the Cardinals into it. And here in St. Louis, that hatred for the Mets is still here. And it's kind of amazing that you look back at that time and you when you interviewed members of that team, they still have that hatred for the Cardinals. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's deep. I mean, as uh, I think Ed Lynch, who was a member of the 85 and 86 Mets, uh, said, you know, we didn't have a rivalry with the Cardinals. It was hatred. We hated each other. And and you felt that. We interviewed Terry Pendleton of, of the Cardinals as well. And, and, and you felt like these teams, there's something deep and, and, and venomous almost about how they, they just couldn't stand each other. And a lot of that, obviously, I think, had to do with, with Keith Hernandez. Nick, it's pretty cool when you have a team, and we had one here with the greatest show on turf, St. Louis Rams, back in the day. When you know they're going to win and they're be they're going to be dominant, and it's especially cool when there's a level of athletic arrogance like Davy Johnson had before the '86 mm. season started. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they knew, uh, you know, that they were they were going to win. And and he, you know, unlike most managers who would be, you know, politically correct or, or at least safe, he told the press, yeah, we're, we're not just going to win, we're going to dominate. And you don't say things like that. And I remember at the time, Whitey Herzog said, uh, well, yeah, I mean, the Mets think they won the last two years anyway. You know, I mean, they, they had such arrogance about them and were such characters that, um, you know, to be able to tell their story is so fun because even if you don't like them or you didn't like them then, you know, they, they just w- had so much personality that it's great to find out who they really were. And going back, I was covering the Cardinals every day at that point, and I remember specifically, I can still see it in my mind's eye, the day the Cardinals announced that Jack Clark was out for the year, in, in his media scrum, Whitey said, boys, it's not going to happen this year. And that's referenced in the piece about how yes. Whitey said, hey, it's not going to happen for the Cardinals this year. This is the Mets year. Yeah, that's right. And Davey, even all these years later, Davey Johnson says in, in the documentary, you know, he calls him the white rat. And it is a white rat jump shit pretty quick, <laughs> you know. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's it's so wonderful to, to uh, you know, be able to immerse yourself in, in that time and those people. Nick, one thing I really loved about this documentary is the way that you really captured how the Mets took over New York. It really felt like the Mets were the personification of New York at that time time. The city was bouncing back after tough times, financial crisis, but the city was blooming with personality. There was a club scene that was popping up and thriving, and here come the Mets, and they're the same way. They were a pretty rough rough operation, and they went from that to a team that's built to win that is booming with personality and that also loved the club scene. And I just thought it was really interesting the way you were able to capture that, because it's pretty improbable for a team to come along and really be able to steal the hearts of baseball fans in New York when you have the game Yankees who have been a crown jewel for so long. Yeah, well, I think you know it, 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 that, that's great. I'm glad you 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 got that because there was this feeling that somehow the team was fusing itself with the city, and and the city had recovered, or it seemed like it had recovered from the 70s. There were still a lot of problems. There was a lot of crime and 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 drug problems and race problems and all these problems in the city that you know in this sort of exhilaration of, of the go-go 80s and money was flowing through Wall Street and stuff, we all sort of forgot about all these problems or they were swept under the rug. And the same exact thing was happening on the team. There were all these problems, but they were just swept under the rug because the team kept winning. Nick Davis, who is producer and director of Once Upon a Time in Queens, a 30 for 30 about the 1986 Mets is with us. And Nick as I watched this, I knew that they had drug problems on that team. I didn't realize that the pervasive cocaine problem was what it was. Once you learned it, are you shocked that they were able to accomplish what they did with all the cocaine that they took? Well, that's what's so interesting. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, people, you know, especially Mets fans of that era, it's like, oh, I can't believe they only won one and they should have won more. And it's like, what do you mean? Look at what they were doing. It's a miracle they got one championship out of it. I, I, I think that the way those guys lived and they, 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 they played hard, they partied hard, and yet they, they were together. You know, they, they definitely fought amongst themselves, but they were such a family. They were so united and all in pursuit of winning. And, and that was really revelatory to me because – you know, as a fan, you think, well, doesn't, don't, aren't all sports teams, aren't they all just want to win? 
and and they do. But so many of these guys, especially like Bobby Ojeda, who'd been on other teams, they said, no, it's not like that all the time. And it wasn't like that in other years. You know, there was a hunger and a desire to win that to a man they said they'd never experienced before or since. You, you called them a family. With that being the case, how do you think Gary Carter fit into that family dynamic of the Mets? <laughs> well, he's your, you know, he's the, the the relative who, you know, gets out the Bible and starts reading the Bible to you at, 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 at dinner when we're all talking about R-rated movies. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's like, okay, thank you, Gary. You know, I mean, the, the Mets, they, they accepted him and, and they made fun of him. But if you were a Cardinal or a Brave and you made fun of him, they were going to go after you and and that's the other thing is they they kept fighting i mean they they got four on the field brawls that year and and won them all as uh you know interviewee jeff perlman says um but you know i think carter he, he didn't quite fit in but his toughness fit in um and and his desire to win was off the charts i mean he had been very frustrated in montreal where he was openly despised by certain members of, 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 of the Expos, you know, because they thought he was a camera hog and, and he was speaking French and, you know, none of them spoke French. And it's like, yeah, but he wanted to do well and he wanted, he worked hard. And, and, and when he got to the Mets, all he cared about was winning. And as soon as the Mets figured that out, they, they opened, welcomed him with open arms. And Nick, sticking with the family thread here, Keith Hernandez has to be the patriarch of that family. And <laughs> you, yeah. did, you did a great job capturing the way that he was able to bring together so many different personalities and a lot of young players on this team. And it feels like a lot of their identity and that hunger you described to win came from Keith Hernandez. Yeah, I mean, he, he changed the complexion of the team when he came over in that just, you know, uh, fateful trade in uh, June of 1983 from, from the Cardinals. Um, he, you know, he, he had won, obviously he'd won the World Series with the Cardinals and got a key hit in Game 7 of the 82 Series, and, and he was a winner. And his first, you know, three or four months on the Mets, the rest of the 83 season, he was not sure he wanted to stick around. Um, but he, he, you know, he went home to his father after the offseason and, and had a real heart-to-heart. His dad said, look, I think they got some good young players, and he ought to stick around. And so he committed to, to sticking around, and sure enough, the next year, Dwight Gooden is a rookie on the team. Strawberry is maturing, and the next thing you know, he is leading them to a 90-win season in 84, and it's like, okay, it's, it's happening, and it's happening a lot faster, I think, even than Keith had, had thought it would. I wonder how often it happens, and because of where the Mets were and, and when, and because Game 6 was so iconic, the story about Keith Hernandez in the, in the extra innings of Game 6 is unbelievable almost. Yes, yes. And Keith was, you know, he, he made the second out. It looked all, you know, it looked like it was over uh, in Game 6 of the World Series. Um, and and he just went into the clubhouse and cracked a beer and thought, well, I, we, we blew it. And, um, you know, he, he's not happy about the fact that he wasn't on the dugout, uh, in the dugout with the rest of his teammates. But the fact is, a lot of them were in the clubhouse. You know, Strawberry was in the clubhouse. Gooden was in the clubhouse. Uh, Kevin Mitchell was in the clubhouse, you know, getting, getting undressed. He had to get dressed when they said, no, you're pinch hitting. Come on. And so it, it's, 
it, it, it is interesting and fascinating what happens to to humans who are on a base, baseball team when they are on the brink of blowing, you know, what should be a, a triumphant, you know, World Series victory. And Nick, we should note that it wasn't unusual for Daryl Strawberry during games to be getting undressed in that clubhouse. Well, I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> you know what's fascinating about uh, Daryl Strawberry is, uh, is, you know, he has turned his life around. It's, it's amazing. I mean, it, you know, he, he went through so many ups and downs during the course of his playing career. But he now lives in right out where you guys are. Right. He lives in sub- suburban St. Louis. And is the one interview, once COVID hit, um, we, we went to a pandemic mode of, of production. So I would zoom in from New York City and interview all these guys. But uh, Daryl was the one flight. I flew to St. Louis to interview Daryl uh, and, and spent a wonderful full day uh, with him out there. And, and it's just, I, I don't know what to say about the irony of the fact that Daryl Strawberry now lives in St. Louis. <laughs> but it's, it's incredible. And he lives in St. Louis, and he's a, he's a man of God. I mean, it's, it's incredible. He's a totally different person from who we watched play. Well, Nick, speaking of the interviews that you conducted, it was probably a dream to talk to these guys. As I'm watching this from somebody who used to be in production, I'm looking at this going, these sound bites are so colorful. They're they're unbelievable. It's like every other person when they talk, it's, it's a, a funny line or a really compelling line. And a lot has been chronicled about this team, but it seems like these guys were, were very vibrant in their answers to you and very transparent. So what's the one thing you learned while making this that really surprised you about that team? Well, I think you're totally right. I, I, I think one of the things that made them such great interview subjects is what made them such a compelling team in the first place. They were all so full of personality. Um, and you know, spending time with Kevin Mitchell, Lenny Dykstra, Daryl Dock, Hernandez, they, they're, they're fascinating guys. I think what surprised me most, especially because I was and am a Mets fan and, and just grew up thinking, God, these are the best athletes of all time, I had no idea the level of baseball intelligence that they had, um, you know, you know, and, and remembering certain things about strategy and, you know, Hernandez on second base and telling Daryl, keep your shoulder in, in this key at bat during the playoffs and, and Strawberry telling me the same story, remembering how he kept his shoulder in and what Hernandez said to him and little things about strategy and hitting and, and all of that. I mean, say what you build about Lenny Dykstra. He's a baseball savant and, and the level of, the, the baseball IQ is like off the charts. That's what surprised me most of all. I have to say, they're 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 amazing, you know, characters, but they're also really smart about their profession, and that makes for interesting viewing. Lenny Dykstra was very interesting viewing. <laughs> yeah, Lenny Dykstra. He began his interview with the you know seven minutes is the most unprintable, hilarious comic riff I, I've ever heard. I had to mute the Zoom. I was laughing so hard. Um, but by the end of his interview, he had completely opened up, and I was—I I felt like I was in the presence of, of, of like a Marlon Brando in *On the Waterfront* or something. I mean, he was—he was just so raw about what has happened to him, but the fact that he did have this one moment. He, he won a World Series in New York City, and he still holds on to that, and it means a great deal to him, as it does to all these guys. It's—it's it's very emotional stuff. Hey, Nick, one more thing. If you ask most people in St. Louis what the score of Game 7 of the 2011 World Series was because Game 6 in 2011 was so iconic with the freeze home run, most people look at Game 7 as a footnote. Is that the way you look at Game 7 for the Mets in 86? 
It's a, that's a perfect analogy. We talked to John McEnroe, and he, he had the same feeling about Game 86 World Series. It's like you win that, and you think it's over. It's not over. you still got another game to play. And he actually also likened it to the Olympic hockey team. You know, mm-hmm. you, you beat the Russians on Friday night, but then you, you, you still have to play for the gold medal on Sunday. Um, yes, and, and the thing is, and maybe the Mets felt this way too, because next thing you know, you wake up and you're down 3 nothing, and it's the sixth inning. Um, and and you got to come back, but but the Mets, you know, as as the Cardinals, the, the Cardinals, it was never really in doubt, as I remember from that game. But uh, the Mets had to come back from three nothing uh, in that game, and 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 you know dig deep and have another come from behind victory. And and when Ray Knight hit the home run in the seventh game, uh, in the seventh inning, that was the first time all series long that the Mets actually had control of the series. Last thing, this is clearly and literally a labor of love, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is and has been. And I, I have to say, I, what Adam Wainwright said, I know this is totally off topic, but I just realized I'm talking to St. Louis people. What Adam Wainwright said last night after the game <laughs> was the, the most brilliant, funniest thing. And I was like, wow, he's, I mean, man, you make a movie about that guy and, and that 2006 Cardinal team. That, that's character. Wainwright and, and Molina, uh, that, was, that, was, that was great what he said. Well, Nick, we really enjoyed your project, Once Upon a Time in Queens, a 30 for 30 on ESPN, and people can check it out on ESPN Plus as well. Thanks so much for the time, and congratulations. Thank you so much, guys. It was fun talking to you. It was great. Take care. Nick Davis, he is the producer and director of Once Upon a Time in Queens, and you can see it on ESPN Plus. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. The college football playoff committee made their decision on Sunday, and as much as I loathe the idea of Ohio State losing their way into the college football playoff, I 100% agree with OSU making it in over Bama. Nick Saban citing some hypothetical point spreads to prove his point that the tie deserve a spot in the college football playoffs holds little substance when you consider Bama's best win is over Texas. No, the committee got it right. TCU had a great season with far more ranked wins than Bama and didn't deserve to lose their spot after playing a surging Kansas State in a championship game. And Ohio State, while not playing some of their best ball later in the season, was still 12-0 until they came face-to-face with my Wolverines. While the college football playoff system isn't nowhere near as good as it could be, it's better than what we had. And in a few years, it will be better for all of college football. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there. From football to basketball to soccer and esports, we've got it all at BetOnline.net. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. And don't forget, bet online for the NHL, MMA, boxing, and golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. Bet online where the game starts. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.